Let's get started. I was waiting for that inevitable silence you guys throw at me every, every day, but you must be getting to know each other now. No, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, I've always tried uh, to tell my grad students anyway, it's, it's great if you can take classes with colleagues in your lab, and, th and they can, they're usually smarter than you are, and they can figure out the homework problems before you can. You're supposed to say, speak for yourself, Robert. Ah. <laughs> uh, it's a lot more fun anyway if you have a friendly face to bounce an idea off of. So where we ended up on Wednesday, um, sorry, yeah, Wednesday, was finishing talking about um, hypothesis tests and statistical power. And we, I'd like to move on into regression today, but uh, before I do that, do you guys have any questions? Okay. And Matt has my textbook, right? Excellent. I don't need it this moment, but I do want it before I go. I haven't actually worked on So I've given you homework problems, and I haven't actually solved them myself yet. So <laughs> I need to do that. It would be a little easier. They're not impossible problems, right? So, but um, I do need to solve them. So I can actually know if you got the right answer when you finish. If you do have any questions about anything, please always just send me an email. And what, I did get an email, and I didn't have my textbook, so I couldn't answer it. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to get it back, but I don't mind lending it to you. If you need it again, too, by the way, that's just fine. Uh, so no questions? Okay, let's start talking about regression. When I teach basic statistics, I like to divide uh, our, sec our discussion of statistical tests into what I call tests to look at relationships and tests to look at differences. If you were to do that in these grad-level classes, Regression is, is fundamentally the study of relationships. Oh, that sounds like Dear Abby, or relationships. Uh, ANOVA, or experimental design, would be uh, the study of tests of differences, or formal structures for tests of differences. So regression is the study of relationships or dependence. And an example that I'll use many times is in this class, because it's something that resonates well with me, but please map something onto it that resonates for you, if you like, is um, the relationship between tree height and tree age. Okay. Tree height and tree age is a good one because all trees, until they die, must get older. But they don't always have to get taller. You can put height here or diameter or volume or what you'd like. They all have to start here at zero because you can't have age less than zero, and you certainly can't have a height less than zero, and they must always be positive. And what does that relationship look like? When we collect data, sometimes, for certain stands, it's a very tight relationship. But if you were to measure height and age in a northern hardwood stand, you might find you have a cloud of observations, because for very shade-tolerant tree species, I destroy my chalk doing that, for very shade-tolerant tree species, that's the one advantage whiteboards have over chalk, other than also not getting quite so dusty. You still get dirty. Um, high age and, and size are not necessarily well-related in shade-tolerant tree species. But anyway, it doesn't matter. And we can use regression, maybe by fitting a, a straight line to these data, to characterize the dependence between these two variables. Another thing about regression is that uh, now, you've, you've probably calculated a Pearson correlation coefficient. You might ask, well, what's the difference between correlation? Regression is special in that it assumes that all the variance comes from the response variable or the, the 
in this case, height. Another way of thinking of that is it assumes that this variable, height, is somehow causally or functionally related to x. If you have a problem where you have no idea if, if trees get taller because they get older or if trees get older because they get taller, this one it's pretty obvious, then you might be thinking you should be using correlation instead of regression. Now there are special branches or, or uh, tools within the broader suite of tools called regression that we can use when we know that there's a lot of variance in our x variable or our predictor variable. Uh, and some of those have to do with, because of course age is me usually measured with error, so there's some variance that is induced in x. But fundamentally when you use regression you're using, uh, you're, you should be analyzing problems where there's something, some kind of cause and some kind of effect or some kind of functional relationship. And I'm getting off of my, uh, my notes right away, which is usually a bad thing for me because then I drift into a funny story about Canada or something. <clears throat> which we did before class, right? Um, so a, a couple uh, things that regression is useful for. The first one is for uh, data description, so useful for. And hopefully we'll see some examples of this in the paper summaries that you do in the class. Uh, right? There's a relationship between height and age. That's pretty vague and qualitative. By fitting a regression line to this, I can actually describe the relationship quantitatively. I can say things like the slope is positive, even if I'm not so sure about the exact magnitude of the slope. It, it's perhaps a more useful summary than just saying here's the average height and the average age uh, for a data set. So it can be very useful, particularly in contexts where you have a clear, um, a clear relationship between your variables. Uh, to, to compactly summarize or describe your data. Another good use of regression is for parameter estimation. And here, if you've ever fit a simple linear regression model, you know you're estimating some parameters. The slope is a parameter. But what I mean is sometimes you have an underlying conceptual or theoretical model. And actually for height, for most trees, we know that it starts at zero. And we know most trees have uh, some kind of asymptotic height development that's limited by hydraulic properties. And, and so there's some maximum height that trees can achieve. And in between that, we assume it's usually some kind of sigmoidal function. But what is that maximum? We can go and measure a bunch of trees and take the average maximum height you get. But in, there's a, a function called the Chapman-Richards function or equation which we, can which we can model. And one of those parameters is the parameter for this asymptote. And so one way of estimating what the average maximum height is, is to fit a regression to a bunch of data and estimate that asymptote parameter. That's a situation where we have something specific that we're interested in. We may not even be very interested in how trees grow down here. We're only interested in the asymptote. And we can use a regression model to estimate that maximum height. So in that sense, that's what I mean by parameter estimation, kind of a functional parameter. Another use is prediction. And I was just uh, using a great example for my students, but in forestry, those of you who have any forestry experience, we often use the height of a tree at a standard age, 50 years, as a metric of the quality of a site. We call it site index. It applies only in even-aged stands, trees that haven't suffered uh, suppression. But how do you measure site index? Well, you got to go out there and find a 50-year-old tree and measure its height. 
well, what if you're in a stand that's only 35 years old? How do you measure site index? You can't. But you can measure its height at age 30 and then find uh, from one of many regression functions for tree height and age, find the function that you fall on, and then if you're willing to make the assumption that trees, that the growth in the past is the same as growth in the future, you can find that line and generate a prediction of height, and we'll call that site index for that stand. That's just one example of prediction. Regression models in my research area or in my experience are used most commonly for prediction in operational forestry amongst all these uh, particular examples. The last one is control. And I think I, I, I got this list from a textbook. I think it was Weisberg's text, which uh, Pardo talks about as he worked with Weisberg, I think. But the example they give for control is process control, or we were talking about Canada, is it process control? Which one is it? I can't remember anymore. I've lived here for 15 years. It's process? It's process. I don't remember which one it is. I've lived in the U.S. for 15 years. I can't remember. My sister sometimes, if, if I'm talking to her on the phone and she wants to insult me, she says, you don't sound Canadian anymore. So that's an insult for a Canadian usually, by the way. And I say to her now, I can say, well, I'm, well, I am, okay. <laughs> but I'm also American, so I'm a hybrid. Anyway, process control. That the example they use in the book is tensile strength of heart of, uh, relate, relating tensile strength of paper to hardwood concentration in pulp. And if you can set a critical limit of tensile strength, you can use an analysis, to, and let's say that this is tensile strength and that's pulp concentration, you can find a critical tensile strength and you can then find a minimum hardwood, uh, softwood, because the tensile strength probably comes from softwood pulp because they have larger fibers, but you can find a minimum softwood concentration that you need to maintain in order to achieve that. In a sense, that's, in my mind, that's really prediction, but it's characterizing a relationship so that you can find a threshold number that you need to meet for process control or process control, whichever one is correct. Again, it, it needs to be uh, fairly causal in order to be correct. So regression analyses begin with data, and that's different from analysis of variance usually. In an analysis of variance, you start by designing an experiment and running it, and then you collect data. Regression flips it around. We start with some data, and then we have some analysis. So there's usually, in a regression analysis, there's at least one predictor variable. Predictor variables are sometimes called the independent variable. And sometimes they're called, I think, the regressors. And then Y is called the regressand? That seems awkward. But given that we're, we're we, or I've said, that we're in an, we're an environment where one variable is supposed to be caused or functionally related to the other, then for me it always made more sense to say one is the predictor that causes the, um, the response variable. All right. The predictor variable is usually called x in regression. Maybe it's x1, but if we use a notation and we say x, we're talking about, in this class, we're talking about predictor variables. Response variables are usually called y. 
There are variants of regression, multivariate regression, where you can have a multivariate response. But in this class, we're always going to have one Y, one response variable. Uh, that is also sometimes called the dependent variable. And our goal is to understand usually how Y varies through variance in X. Our data are then going to be sets of observations of X's and Y's for I equals 1 to N is your sample size. Okay. So I looked at using Weisberg's text one time, and I wasn't really that keen on it, but I did like some of the material he had in his introductory chapter. And uh, to give credit where credit's due, I've, I've drawn that structure, the structure for this lecture from that text. And I want to show you, uh, by way of example, some introductions to regression <coughs> concepts. Okay. Uh, Weisberg sets up the context for regression with a classic example, or what I'm told is a classic example, and it's age data that Carl Pearson, of Pearson's correlation fame, collected on heights of uh, mothers and their daughters. And the, the, uh, the, this data set, just for your information, uh, had 1,375 observations of heights of mothers and their daughters, and Pearson asked the question, is there some dependence between the height of mothers and daughters? Now, despite the fact that this is not necessarily a good example for regression, if you buy into what I said earlier, which is that there needs to be some, whoops, some sense of dependence. Because does the height of a mother depend on the height of a daughter? I guess the height of a daughter probably depends on the genetics, at least of the height of a mother. Yeah. We could have some other factors in there too, like whether you drank a lot of milk or not. Uh, did I get any, any interesting email here? No, nope, I'm waiting on a paper review, sorry. But I won't do that in class. That was supposed to be funny. Um, just hold on a sec while I take this call. No, anyway, just, just pause. Um, I've got the code right here. And I'll put these, these uh, scripts on the class webpage. And I installed the R console. And I don't want to run it in the R console. I want to open this with R Studio. Yes. It's not a virus. So one thing I forgot, so I was describing to some of you yesterday that maybe I shouldn't be using R Studio in class because we're constrained to this one window down here. I don't use this window very much at all. Here's our script and here's our console. You can, of course, you can always make change these and make one bigger and smaller if you like. Since I don't need the uh, environment at all, I'll just leave it up like that. So I've got uh, a script here, and I'll make this available to you. I've made this so small. Where's the submit button? There it is. There's the run button. Uh, I don't think I've run this, installed this package on this computer, so I'll just let it run. Assuming the uh, internet is connected. That's not very inspired. There we go. And it's from uh, Weisberg's textbook on linear regression. And so all I've done is install his package, which contains some data sets that he used in the textbook, and then uh, loaded, them, loaded the library and uh, brought in the one data set heights that we're going to use. But anyway, here's, uh, 
Here's Pearson's data. And all I've done is a very simple plot of heights of these. Uh, and in fact, I've said plot heights, which is the whole data set, just has two columns in it. One of which is the mother's height, and the other is the daughter's height. And then I've added something called AB line. Just an AB line has an intercept of A and a slope of B. The one-to-one -one line that I talked about in class before, which we commonly use when we want to compare two data sets. If the, very, if, if the change in X perfectly predicts the change in Y, then all the dots line up on the one-to-one -one line, if they're perfect. But if they're not perfect, you get a scatter. And what you can see from this data set right away is they're clearly not perfect. Another thing you can see is that more than half of the observations are above the line. That means, on average, daughters are taller than their mothers. What the heck? How did that happen? I don't think I have the date on this, but when Pearson did this in the 1930s, all those mothers were probably malnourished or less nourished. This is maybe, well, I think it's the actual answer. It's there, there's a, an effect here on, on uh, height development. And as an interesting aside, since my wife runs a home daycare, there was a story in CNN or something today that said a new, prominent Harvard nutritionist published a paper said we probably should not be drinking so much milk. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the only mammals that continue to drink after we well, Not only that, we, don't, we get it from another mammal. You know? It's like the clearly, and there are large, large uh, communities across the world that don't drink a lot of milk, and they all seem to, to grow just fine. But apparently the studies do show that you do tend to be taller if you drink milk. But what they were trying to get at is the idea that Drinking a lot of milk doesn't protect you against osteoporosis. I just thought it was interesting because my wife just almost force feeds milk to all these little children because milk is good for you, right? <laughs> she doesn't force feed, but they drink a lot of it. Anyway, um, hey, it's related. Heights of mothers and daughters. So daughters are taller because they drank a lot more milk. So what was I trying to say about this example? All right. Some uh, important basic issues in regression can be illustrated with these scatter plots. All right. And so the first characteristic that um, that Weisberg introduced was the idea of um, the axes in the one-to-one -one line, which I've already explained to you uh, what those are. Um, you can see that the, the observations that fall on this side of the line, the mothers are taller than their daughters, and the observations on the other side of the line, the daughters are taller than their mothers. These one-to-one -one plots, by the way, are best done if you can force them to be square and have the same range limits. I, I don't teach that in this class, but one, of, one a standard trick, by the way, if you ever want to convince somebody that uh, a response is stronger than it seems, is to graph it in such a way that the line appears steeper. And you can do that by just tinkering with the box dimensions and the axes. It's been done. It's been done. If the, if the line appears steeper, steeper, people think that the response is stronger. All right. So, th so if you want to be ethical, if you do these one-to-one -one plots, the box should be square, and the range limits should be the same for x and y, so you don't distort visually the relationship. Something else that uh, Weisberg introduced in this example was the idea of overplotting. And I think you can imagine, here comes the piece of text. Um, these heights were collected using data that were rounded. And what Weisberg actually did in the data set to make the pattern a little more obvious was jitter the observations. And you may use this. My students have used this a fair amount when generating uh, graphics for, um, for publications. There's the actual data on the right. Now, ours being quite smart and making the, the, the 
combinations of X and, of, well, X1 and X2 or X and Y that are very common, darker on the right-hand side. You can see that there's more density in the middle. But it's not as effective as the left-hand graph that gives you a better sense of the joint distribution of the observations. These have been jittered. By jittering, that means that they've added a random number, probably in both directions, because otherwise they'd be just scattered in one way. It gives you a better sense of the data. And that can be very helpful when conveying to your audience what it is you're trying to, um, what you're trying to say. All right. Carrot? That they're, they've just added a random number. And so in this case, the random number was between probably 0 and 1 to every observation in both directions. But you wouldn't be able to tell that by seeing the code? Or? Well, Weisberg actually did it before he put the, uh, the data on the website. So I've actually unjittered them by rounding them in my code. If you see my code here, I've, I'm plotting. Where'd it go? I've rounded the heights here using the round function. There's a function for everything. Other, there's no function called thesis chapter. <laughs> I know I've said that before, but it's the best you're going to get from me, so I might as well reuse it. There's no function called thesis chapter or analyze data, um, but there is one called round. So I've rounded them to unjitter them, essentially. Uh, the, third, uh, the third characteristic that Weisberg introduced was um, the idea of dependence and independence. And so what we're trying to show here, just replotting re the original graph on the left, is that there's clearly a trend. If we just take a couple ranges of mother's heights and we look at the distribution of the daughter's heights within those ranges, you can see that the variance is pretty much constant as you go across in the x direction, and that clearly the average of these are mothers that are 57 or so, and these are 65, and those are 69. The average observation, or the average height is clearly getting larger. And maybe I shouldn't be putting the one-to-one -one line in here because that's making you think it's a regression line or it's, it's maybe instilling in you the idea of a relationship. If we take it away, you just see a cloud. But if you do break the, the data down by subsets of the mother's heights, you can see the average daughter site is changing with the average. That's the idea of, of dependence. And then just return to the original graphic here just to show the idea of an ellipse. This ellipse is characteristic of data that are jointly distributed. So although there may be a functional relationship there is a distribution of mother's heights. And when these data were collected, they sampled people randomly. When you sample randomly, you tend to, to sample only rarely uncommon observations. So we have a distribution in two directions. We've got a distribution of unusually small mothers and or short mothers and, and short daughters and unusually tall mothers and tall daughters, but they're very uncommon. And there's a distribution in both directions. Usually these, when you have ellipses, these are good signs that you're going to meet the classical assumptions or requirements uh, of re regression. Uh, this is also an example of using regression in the context where there's not necessarily a causal hypothesis to begin with. We don't really know why daughters are taller than, uh, that if, if mothers get taller, their daughters get taller. And we might be using regression to help characterize or explore that relationship. 
A, a parallel is another example that Weisberg introduces, which are the Forbes data. Forbes uh, conducted a study that related the, um, the, the uh, temperature of the boiling point of water, the temperature at which water boils, and atmospheric pressure. And on the left, we have a plot of the temperature, and I've actually fit a linear regression and plotted the regression line. And on the right, I've plotted the residuals. And the first thing I want to, to do is just illustrate the differences here. From the, the example of mothers and daughters heights, here we have very few data. The other had a large number of observations. Here's very few. And the data are very closely distributed against the line. And part of the reason for this is that Forbes had a theory in advance and wanted to confirm the theory by collecting some observations. So I say regression normally starts with data. It certainly regression analysis does. In this case, Forbes collected data because there was a theory about atmospheric pressure and the boiling point that Forbes wanted to confirm. So it's a very small data set and they fall very close to the line. Um, in fact, there's actually a, a near, nearly perfect functional relationship here. Those of you who understand, would this be chemistry or physics? I don't know, in a long time. But there is a functional relationship between these two. And so it's not, the only reason that these dots don't all fall on the line is either that it's not a linear, a perfectly linear relationship, but the bigger one is measurement error. There's measurement error in the, in the instrument that measured temperature and atmospheric pressure. So, so we're, we would not expect that the observations would fall on the line. This plot on the right of residuals, I want to introduce the concept of a residual. Residuals are the dif difference between the measured value on the y-axis and the corresponding point on the regression line. So they're little deviances. Okay? How imperfect is the regression line at predicting this individual measured observation? And you can see from looking at these residuals that they're, they're roughly half of them on both sides, or at least, and it turns out, we use the squared residual as a way to fit the regression line, so roughly half, half of the squared differences. But there does appear to be a trend here, some kind of trend in the residuals. And then we've got one weird observation up there. And the idea here is introducing two concepts. One is lack of fit, and the other is outliers, or highly influential observations. This is, this is, this is the outlier up there. It's some, there's something wrong with that dot. And you don't actually need to know much about the problem to believe that that's probably a significant measurement error in one direction. You don't know anything about water, boiling points, and temperatures, and so forth to do that. The other one is that there, there's a distinct trend as well, which means that this line is not really approximating the data perfectly, because in some parts of the range of temperature, this line is too high, or too low, I should say. The, line, the residuals here are negative. The line is too high. In other parts of it, the line is pretty good. In other parts of it, the line is too low. All right. So Forbes' theory, actually, was that the functional relationship was not linear between temperature and pressure, but it was between temperature and the uh, logarithm of, uh, of pressure. So we can redo this graphic by first, and I know this is small, but what, I've, what I'll tell you what I did, I simply created, and we, 
I showed you this in the example in last class, a new variable called LPress in the data set by taking the base 10 log of pressure in accordance with Forbes' theory. And then refit the regression and plotted it. Doesn't look that different here, but you can see it's substantially different in terms of the residuals. Other than that outlier, there's not really a trend in the residuals here as a function of the predictor variable temperature. And that validates the theory. What's left here, the residual variance, why these aren't all zero, is measurement error, and in that case, a particular, an unusual measurement error uh, called outlier, called an outlier. And this is an example of using regression in a context where there was an underlying theory. The collection of data and then the characterization of that relationship was used as evidence to validate the theory. At some point, you have enough data that you reach some level of certainty. If you had only one point, you couldn't fit a regression. You need at least two to fit a regression line. All right, one more example from Weisberg is some data on smallmouth bass. And I guess I grew up in the West. Do we have bass in the West? I don't know. I now own a piece of land on a lake, and my kids catch rock bass. So apparently, some rock bass are nasty, and smallmouth bass are great, right? Those of you who eat bass. They're bony, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, these are data on smallmouth small bass. And one thing I did learn, because I sat on a committee of a student in biology, that you can tell the age of a fish by counting rings in their little ear structures. But anyway, in here the age of fish have been collected, and the length of the fish has been measured, presumably destructively, the, the age, not the length, um, and the, the data are plotted. What's different about this example is that this predictor variable uh, clearly is, is um, what am I trying to say? It's not continuous. I mean, it's continuous, but it doesn't have infinite uh, decimal places in between them. You're either one or you're two, depending on when you're born and when you cross the, the, the date line. There's clearly a relationship, even without the uh, regression line, and this trend between means is just drawing a little spline, literally taking the mean at each age and then just connecting the means with a line. But there's clearly a trend between length, age, and length in fish. You believe it? But it turns out that any given age is actually a pretty poor predictor of the length of a fish because here, for an age three fish, you can have anywhere from 120 to 250, and that range spans most of the other uh, ages. And so um, the, the, the simple age is not a, a great predictor of length. How, so given that we don't have a very precise characterization of what's going on, is this regression model useful? Well, in, if, you were, if you were to be, say, you were looking at response of uh, a water body to land cover change or pollutants inputs into the lake or something, would you think that might affect the growth rate of fish? So even though age is not a perfect predictor, if you fit this regression line to 100 different lakes, you might be able to use the slope of the line as an indicator of how productive those lakes are for different fish. So despite the fact that any given fish, age is a pretty poor predictor of length, by analyzing the data, you could still use the regression line to tell you something about the average trend 
and that might be very useful. So this is intended as an example to illustrate that even with a lot of noise, uh, you can use regression to characterize uh, populations. And the idea was that this related to the, the four examples that the board is now covering. Okay. Uh, I want to introduce then the concept of the mean function. I'm not going to turn the computer off. But when I learned regression, it was not described this way to me. But since actually um, Pardo, the author of your text, is pretty good at using expected values or ex expectation notation, and I really like the concept of the mean function, right? We say that in simple statistics. If y is some kind of random variable, then the expected value of y is its population mean. It's, it, it's, it's what it says. The expectation, the long run value, if you collect observations of this random variable, is its population mean. Well, in regression, we simply expand this concept to what we might call conditional expectation, expected value. So this is in a simple sampling environment. In regression, we say that the expected value of y is no longer uh, something that stands all alone. It is conditional on x taking some particular value. So the expected value of length here, if age equals 2, is probably the mean. But by making this a function, we now say that the expected value of length is a single function that is a linear uh, function of the x variables. And using uh, the, the standard regression, or sorry, population versus sample terminology, I'm going to use betas in here to be the population parameters which stand in for, or which our samples estimates stand in for. When you learn regression in basic statistics, somebody probably put mx plus b here. I don't know why we do that. Maybe somebody could tell me. That'd be great. Yeah, but why, why use this notation? Uh, that, that x doesn't look very much like an x, does it? We'll make that an x, mx plus b. I'm not sure why that notation is commonly used in basic statistics. I wish it wasn't because then everybody that moves on I've never read a regression textbook that used that, even for simple linear regression. They've always used the concept of betas. And that also doesn't, doesn't really uh, adhere to the idea of representing population parameters with, with capital Greek letters and sample estimates with small English letters. So there's really not a big difference here between this expectation and this one, except this one is now the expectation of y is a function of x. And if those of you have had any exposure to matrix algebra, you can substitute these with matrix terms. This could be a vector and this could be a matrix of multiple x's. And you can extend this model out. In this case, beta 1 becomes a vector and this becomes a whole bunch of different predictors. We'll talk a little bit about how re regression is done in matrix notation just so you have a little bit of vocabulary in case you encounter it in the literature. Now, this is the idea of, of a mean function. And the notation we've used with these betas is we're describing the population mean function. The standard concept in statistics of population versus sample applies here.
do we know these values? We don't know them unless we measure every single observation of X and Y in the population. Then we can, then we can calculate what they are. Just like we never know the true sample mean, the true population mean when we take a sample, unless we measure every element in the population. So what we work with are the sample-based estimates of the population parameters, which in regression notation, we, we often will take an, uh, use a, a little caret over something to talk about an estimate. Okay? So some people might replace these. If you ever see beta zero hat, this would be the sample-based estimates of those things. I tend not to do this, but you may see it. And I'm sorry if I, it sounds like I'm complicating things for you. I'm trying not to complicate things for you. I remember I talked already about sigma UU and that I learned when I was a PhD student. I talked maybe in the first lecture about that. You may see these little hats on here. You may even see this written as y given x equals x. And you might see a hat, a great big hat put over that to describe this as the estimated mean function is the estimates of these two parameters. We're just going to, we're going to say usually the little, little English letters like that. These are sample-based estimates of the population parameters, which we don't know, but we presume exist. And if we could measure every element in the population, then we could just, just calculate them. But we don't, so we're going to have to um, infer them from uh, our sample. Okay, returning to Weisberg's example of the mother's and daughter's heights. I'll just rerun the function. I've augmented the graph with a few things. And I'll put this code on the uh, Canvas page so you can download and run it yourself. The black line is the one-to-one -one line. The blue line is a simple linear regression or our estimated mean function for these data. The slope can be calculated. The classic way is rise over run for this. You count for, for um, one unit of rise, what do you get in units of run? And the intercept is where it crosses the value of uh, x equals zero. We don't know that's way out here somewhere, but that's what b0 and b1 are. The, um, the yellow line and the red line give you the mean mother's height and the mean daughter's height. And what this shows by accident, well, that's another one. People around here say on accident. I say by accident. Do you say on accident or by accident? And it drives me nuts. My son says on accident all the time. It drives me nuts. Anyway. Sorry, I'm distractible today. Maybe always. Uh, interestingly, you'll note that the mean of x and the mean of y falls exactly on the regression line, and that happens to be a property of linear regression. The mean, this is the average mother's height, and this is the average daughter's height. And at that point, x bar, y bar falls exactly on the regression line. All right. So a couple of things that we can learn from this line, and this is interesting because this is the origin, by the way, of the saying regression towards the mean. That's where regression comes from, the name regression comes from. Uh, the slope of this line is positive. And that means that as mother's heights get taller, we expect, statistically, daughter sites to get taller. Okay? It's positive. If it were negative, it would say the opposite. So there's a positive relationship. Tall mothers have tall daughters. Because the slope is not equal to 1, it means the further away you get from uh, the mother's height, the further away you get from the mean of the daughter site. Let me just reread re that again. The further a mother gets from the mean, the less like the mother, 
the daughter is because the slope is not equal to one. If the slope was perfectly equal to one, then a one unit difference in the mother's height would imply on average, our expectation would be a one unit difference in the daughter's height. Because the slope is not one, the further away you get from being an average mother, the less like your da the daughter is to the mother. Because the slope is less than one, it means that mothers that are shorter than average tend to have daughters that are taller than them. And, and mothers that are taller than average tend to have daughters that are shorter than them. That concept, or in other words, the further you get away from the average mother's height, the closer you get to the average daughter's height, the more li likely you are to be towards the average. That's the origin of the concept regression towards the mean. And it's actually where the phrase regression came from. And it's not a very good example because much of what we do with regression is estimating this line, which may or may not have a slope less than one. It may have a slope greater than one, which is regression away from the mean. But it happens to be this, this was an example where the concepts, where a lot of the, the statistical concepts were developed and the origin of that phrase regression towards the mean. And perhaps regression is a bad name for the entire discipline. Since a lot of times we don't, we have progression, not regression, but we're stuck with it. Um, yeah, okay. And that's what I wanted to say about that. Any questions? at this point. All right. So let me turn this off and we'll, we'll, we'll carry on. We're a little ahead so we got time to get started on the next thing. All right. Let's take a look at a regression in detail so we can understand and label all of the parts. So one of the things about regression is the concept of, of variance taking place predominantly, if not exclusively, in the y dimension. And you saw that, that oval plot that showed there was variance in two, but the idea is that the, expect, the, the variance in the problem comes only from y. So let me draw a regression. That's not a very good y-axis, is it? Did I just do it again? So here we have our regression line. Here's our predictor variable x, our response variable y, and it's a regression line. Since it's a single line with one x, this is a simple linear regression. We say when we have more than one x, we have a multiple linear regression. And for this regression, we can estimate the two uh, population parameters. The first one, if this is x equals zero, is right here. And if this is, for a moment, let's just talk about this as being the population regression line. If this is the population regression, I can describe these in terms of the population parameters and I'll use capital Greek letters. This thing called beta naught is the intercept. Sometimes people will call it the y-intercept. There is a corresponding x-intercept, but it's just a function of the y-intercept. It's the point at which the regression line crosses the y-axis, where x is, your predictor value is equal to zero. Even if you have multiple regression, you still have a y-intercept, because it's just like adding axes. And you can also estimate the slope of this regression line by finding something we might call the run, 
or the difference between the two x values and the corresponding rise that you get. And the slope, beta 1, is equal to rise over run. If the run is 1, it tells you the number of units rise you get for one unit run. Make sense? Okay. Then, for any given value of x, we expect that we have a corresponding point on the regression line, which we might call the fitted or the predicted value. This point on the line here, this is some x, some value of x. It has another value of y, which we're going to call y hat, or the fitted, the value on the regression line that corresponds with that level of x. This is sometimes called a fitted or a predicted value. Of course, there's variance in this problem. So you're going to actually have observations for any given value of x all over the range of y. You might not have them in your data set. But the concept of regression is that if you pick a fixed value of x, you're going to have variance in y. You don't flip it around. You don't pick a tree height and find variance in age. Although that might exist in the woods, that's not the concept. The idea is that the variance in y comes around fixed values of x. And that, like I say, there are specific regression techniques that we can use in scenarios where we have measurement error. One of the classic assumptions in regression is that the distribution of these is Gaussian or normal. So I want you to imagine coming out of the, the, uh, the board a little normal distribution like this. Most of the observations, okay, that's coming straight out of the blackboard, not flipped sideways like that. Most of the observations are centered on y hat, but they could be in either range. And so out here somewhere, is an actual observation, right? This is a measured value of y for a given value of x. The difference between these is the residual. Since we're talking about the population, I'm going to use a cap epsilon or whatever. The difference between these, this residual, is difference between the measured value of y and the corresponding fitted or predicted value for y conditional on the mean function, the mean function itself. Okay? This thing is called the residual. So what we have actually are a few equations. one of which describes the regression line, and one of which describes a point on the regression line. So if we're talking about the line, it's got to be in the lingo of the fitted values. This is an equation for the line, or the regression surface. Sometimes you'll hear the term surface because when you get a multiple regression, you get a plane, and you get hyperplanes when you get more than two dimensions. We have another line here. 
should put the eyes in there, which is for a measured value. Measured values are formulated in the same concept. They have, they're a combination of the corresponding value on the line, the fitted value, plus the residual. And in this regression lingo, we have, um, and I, um, we always have a residual, even, on, even in the, po the whole population. And that's 11.55, so we will quit there and carry on on Monday. If you have any questions about anything, I know we're starting off a little slow. We'll pick up uh, the pace, or at least we'll, get, we'll start getting into some of the material. Please take some time and dig into Chapter 2. If you have any questions about the homework, send me an email uh, or come stop by my office.